<clears throat> we have been uh, coming through the book of Hebrews here, which is, as I said, one of the three most important books in the New Testament. <clears throat> no question about it. And I showed you how that the book of Hebrews is a book of comparison. And this is why it's so valuable to us, but at the same time it becomes the issue for so many people who don't really know how to follow the, the, the books of the Bible, and especially when it comes to the book of Hebrews. And I, I've showed you so far that every chapter here is a comparison of something that is now better in the New Testament than it was in the Old Testament. And the first chapter, a couple of chapters, we talked about Christ and the promises. And uh, I told you from chapter 3 up to chapter 10, each know, even though each chapter <coughs> has a particular aspect to it, it's from 3 to 10, it's dealing with the priesthood of the Old Testament and how the priesthood of the New Testament is better. Now today we're going to start chapter 5, and I want you to, <coughs> I'm going to do something a little different here with this. <coughs> I'm going to try to teach you today chapter 5 and chapter 7, and I'm going to skip chapter 6, and then the next week we come back, next time we come back we'll do 6. But i got to do 5 and 7 together because they deal with the same subject, and I don't want to split them up, <coughs> because if I do I'm afraid we'll lose what I want to get from you. So we'll do 6 the next time we get together, but we're going to try to focus on chapter 5 and chapter 7. And the reason for that <coughs> is... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Somebody give me a bottle of water. <coughs> I not only got it, I got the hiccups. You know how to get rid of hiccups when you got them? Huh? Peanut butter. Peanut butter. Yeah, I keep it right in my backpack here. <coughs> <coughs> The way you get rid of hiccups is you drink 10 swallows of water. See, what happens with your hiccups is, this is covered in chapter 6, so maybe I ought to teach it today. What happens when you get hiccups is your diaphragm gets turned inside out or something like that. I don't know if it actually gets in, turned inside out, but it, 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 whatever it does. So what you got to do is you got to uh, do two things. If you scare somebody, that usually will fix it. And all of you are about as scary as you could be, and it didn't help them at all today. So what the next thing is, you drink 10 swallows of water without breathing. And that reverses it. So, excuse me. Huh? Just, just, just watch. Wrong. See? <coughs> no, they're gone. They're gone. Gone, 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 gone. Yes, my hiccups are gone. Okay. So, <coughs> chapter 5 and chapter 7 deal with the priesthood. And what it does, it compares the Old Testament priesthood with the New Testament priesthood. Now, there's two priesthoods represented in the Bible. 
One of them is the Old Testament priesthood of Aaron, which is a literal physical priesthood. The other one is the spiritual priesthood of Christ. One represents the kingdom of heaven, Old Testament. The other one represents the kingdom of God. Notice how it cured my hiccup. See, I'm just telling you. So, what we have here in chapter 5 and chapter 7 is the mystical man who shows up in the Bible by the name of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek is, represents the priesthood of Christ, the eternal priesthood. So Melchizedek, who is a mystery guy in the Bible, uh, somewhat, you know, shows up here in chapter 5 and again in chapter 7. And this is where 99.999% of the teachers of the Bible um, just get off the track and never, never get back home. I mean, they, they just go to pieces on this. And, and I've always wondered why that was, because it is so clear if you just read it and follow it. But I think the, probably the reason is that they don't see the overall ups, aspect of, of Hebrew. So when you get into 5 and chapter 7 and you look at Melchizedek, um, they just look at him as a character and not seeing what he represents. And I think that's probably the issue. You're going to find that as we start down through here, um, in uh, uh, chapter 5 and chapter 7, you're going to find seven times where you find the phrase after the order of Melchizedek. <clears throat> and Melchizedek represents the eternal priesthood of Christ. So, when you read this down through here, you get the idea that Melchizedek is, was eternal. And this has led most Bible teachers who even venture into this to try to make him Christ. And that is probably the standard teaching of anybody who has any idea of what we're dealing with here. They always make Melchizedek Christ, an Old Testament appearance of Melchizedek in the Old Testament as Christ. And of course, um, if you would read this, you know, it, it goes out the window. And, and that's all based on, look at over chapter 7, verse 3. Uh, verse 2. It's uh, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, and Salem is Jerusalem, Salem, Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And... Uh, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first by being, by interpretation, uh, king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So his basic three titles is uh, king of righteousness and king of Salem and king of peace. Now, all that matches up to Christ. There's no question about that. But now look at verse 3. Now here's where they get hung up. Without father, without mother, without descent, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like unto the Son of God, at, uh, abideth a priest continually. Now that verse right there is what men take to tell you that it it's Christ in the Old Testament in an Old Testament appearance. So 
that's where they get it. We'll, we'll debunk that here in a little bit and show you how that, uh, it, that's not true. So let's go back to chapter 5, and let's start in verse 1, and then we're going to jump over 6, and we're going to go right into uh, chapter 7, and we're going to see how this thing works. Uh, this is something I want you to get down in your Bible, uh, because if you're ever going to get your Bible working for you and really know your Bible, it's things like this that you've got to see and understand. And obviously, it's part of the book of Hebrews, which is vital for us too. For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men in things pertaining to God that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now that is the Old Testament priests, okay? That's what they did. Notice high priest taken from among men. Very, very, very important. Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also was compassed with infirmity. And by, and by reason hereof, he ought, as for the people, also for himself to offer for sin. Now verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 all deal with the Old Testament Levitical priesthood of a human man from men who carried out the sacrifices and did what he needed to do. Now, I would mark that in your Bible. Uh, if you've got a red china marker, uh, you know, bracket out verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. Or you could just not do that and draw a line in with your red magic, red uh, china marker between verse 4 and 5. Either way, you want to split it up because now we're going to change. Verse 5. So also Christ. Ah, now we're switching gears. And we're going to compare now the Levitical priesthood of Aaron under the Old Testament law with the New Testament priesthood of Christ who is typified by Melchizedek. So also Christ glorified not himself to be made a high priest, but he that said unto him, Thou art my son, today have I begotten thee. As he saith also in another place, Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now there's your first time you find it. Who, here it comes, in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard uh, in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now, this is clearly talking about Christ, and it's showing us some keys about what we, uh, for ourselves here, that you don't want to miss. First of all, it says that Christ learned obedience. Now, obviously, he was perfect, and he didn't sin. But as he took on the human form of a man, he had to be tempted at all points like we are, yet without sin, for it to work the way it was supposed to work for us. And so it says here that, uh, you know, verse Seven, when he offered up prayers and supplications with strong kind and tears. Now that will be that will be the Garden of Gethsemane. If you don't have that note in your Bible, that'll be Mark fourteen thirty-two and Matthew twenty-six thirty-six for that verse. If you don't have that, and then it says that uh, though he were a son, yet he learned uh, he learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Now we know that he as Christ he was perfect. But as the Son of Man, he has to go through things, and he is, and his obedience is only enhanced 
by the things that he goes through. Now, that's an incredible, credible concept uh, outside what we're going to study today for you and for me. Because it shows us that when we go through things, when we suffer through things, when there's things in our life that we don't get an easy answer to and have to deal with in, in a certain way, when we take those things to the Bible, use the biblical principles, put those things in our lives the way it's supposed to, through that suffering and us using the principles, that's how we learn obedience. It's not obedience to, uh, it's obedience to the principles uh, to guide us through the sufferings that we're going through. And uh, tomorrow, uh, I'm going to, we're going to look at some more things in Proverbs chapter 31, and we're going to begin to see how, um, how these things uh, really play out. Whatever problem man has, save man, forget the world. Whatever problem we all have, you know, through the struggle of doing what's right with it, that's how we learn obedience to the Word of God because that's how we get out of it. And I can say this, we're going to talk about this tomorrow, whatever issue you and I may have, until we apply the biblical principles to fix it, it will only get worse. And that is a that is number one rule of dealing with ourselves, people with their issues. As long and people will come up with all kinds of ideas and, and attitudes about not doing what the biblical principles say, but trying to fix it another way. And to that I'm telling you again, until we get to the book, get into the principles, and apply the principles, whatever we're dealing with, not only will not go away but it's only going to get worse. And that's why through our obedience of the principles of the Word of God, as we suffer, then uh, that's how God teaches us to be obedient. And uh, I always liken it to uh, uh, a shock collar on a dog or that invisible fence you put around your thing when a dog gets, he learns very quickly obedience because every time he crosses the kill zone, he gets shocked. Or if he's out there and you, he does something you don't want him to do, you give him about 110 volts and he knows that that's... Uh, but through his suffering, see, he learns obedience. Just apply that to you. We all got a God shock collar on us. And that shock collar will be the sufferings we go through things when we don't do what's right. And when God pushes the button and we get the shock, that should teach us obedience. Don't go there. Don't do that. Don't do this. And of course, you know, it's a thing where that's that's what the verse is saying. Then he says in verse 9, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal life, eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Now, here again, the word perfect. See, it would be very easy for us to take the word perfect and say, perfect as far as sinless. Well, how could he be made perfect if he was sinless? Deal with that issue. Or we could even take it where you do find it sometimes that he was perfected in the work that he did for God, which would be okay, but that's not what we're talking about here. This is the classic example of you got to stay with the context. When it talks about his obedience, and then it talks about him being uh, made perfect, 
it's talking about his priesthood. <laughs> you got to stay with the context. Once you start 5-1 and you start seeing we're dealing with Moses' priesthood and Christ's priesthood, and then you finally you see a verse that says that he, 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 was, he was obedient through suffering, and then he was made perfect, you got to put that into a context. And you can be f- free to fly out there and make it whatever you want, which is what most people do, or you stay with the context, and now we see that his obedience and his perfection was to his priesthood. And so that's what we're comparing here. This is why forever and ever and ever and ever and ever, and it seems like very few people ever pick it up and get it, you've got to have a context for everything you do. Um, most questions on Thursday night Bible study, not all of them, but a lot of them, would be very answered and never have to be asked if the person would just look at the context. Now, I'm glad they don't because then I would be out of a job. But it's a thing where fundamentally it's an easy thing, to, it's an easy fix if you just step back and look at what you're reading. And I've heard all guys kind of take verse 8 and 9 and, and, uh, and verse 7 and use that. But they take it out of the context. The context here is that his obedience through his suffering and him being made perfect was to his priesthood. Um, called of God, oh, here it comes, verse 10. Called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. There's your second time. Of whom, Melchizedek, we have, uh, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing you are all dull of hearing. Boy, if that isn't true to God's people, because he's got a lot of things he wants to say about Melchizedek and what he represents, but people can't get it because they're dull of hearing. In other words, they don't follow the scriptures. And that's 99% of God's people when it comes to who Melchizedek was or what his job was, or chapter 5 and chapter 7. This is why I want to do them together and then bypass 6 and come back next time with 6. Um, and then in verse 12, 13, and 14, he gives, he, he gives a little dissertation here based on uh, verse 11 that the people that he's talking to are dull of hearing. And obviously, this is a true statement, and I know how that, uh, you know, I told you that Hebrews, you have to be selective of how you directly apply it because of who it's written to. But there are places in there that fit right across the board, both to Israel and to us, and this is one of them here. And now he says, for when the time, uh, for, uh, for when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as has need of milk and are not strong meat. Now that is, that verse right there is the key verse for just about every Christian on a planet today in the Laodicean church age. And that is exactly what you have. Uh, it's a time when they ought to be teachers. They ought to be using the Word of God. But notice, uh, somebody has to go back and go through discipleship one again with them. And this is probably the fourth or fifth time. In other words, these people are not moving past the fundamental principles other the basic concepts of the Word of God, relationship with Christ, and Christianity. And uh, they're just not getting there. 
And uh, notice the oracles of God. Oracles is a oral word, word of God, spoken word of God. And, uh, uh, you know, doctrine in the Bible will always be a, always connected with the voice of God, the oracles of God. The oracles of God is the word of God which come forth from God's mouth. And uh, he's saying here that you guys ought to know this. But, you know, at the time you ought to be teaching others. And, and, and how true of that is just in our own church? I mean, if everybody in our church would aspire to take somebody next year and disciple them, find somebody to disciple, let God bring somebody in your world to disciple, you know, it would, it would, it would revolutionize the whole attitude of the church uh, because everybody would be following through with what they're supposed to be doing. And yet we have many, 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 many of our people that are working with people. Some people are working with multiple people, five, four, five, six, you know, maybe three or four directly, and then you've got five or six on the stringers out there, you know, that, that you're uh, connected with in one way or the other. And, you know, it is the, you know, it's, it's just the way that it works. And, uh, you know, and so you, 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 everybody needs to get to that point. And Paul's frustration here is that, look, you have been around long enough. Why aren't you moving past the, the first principle stages? And again, one more time, somebody's got to go over the first basic things for you. And you're somebody that, uh, has to get milk and not strong meat. And there's two uh, principles for you that uh, milk in the Bible will always be the basic shallow stuff of the Word of God for babies. The meat will, be, as the Bible says, belongeth to them, uh, we'll see here in a moment, that uh, are full of age. It's Bible doctrine. And this is the, without a doubt, this is the fundamental breakdown of Bible Christianity today is the fact that there's no meat anywhere. And it, it, the doctrine of the Bible, the meat of the Bible, is such a crucial, telltale picture of where somebody is at. You know, people get confused sometimes because you look back in church history, in our recent time, in the 1800s, and you see guys that God greatly used, but they were messed up on some of their doctrines. And, and one of them you find is a, is a true deal, would be, would be predestination or Calvinism. You're going to find that some of the great preachers that we hold up, or that are held up in Christianity, were, were Calvinists in their, in their thinking, or maybe moderate Calvinists. But Think of Spurgeon. Uh, Spurgeon was a great preacher. And, you know, he held great revivals. But he was a moderate Calvinist. I mean, you find Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield. I mean, their foundational preaching was paramount to establish in this country. But they're moderate Calvinists. You, we, we have in our bookstore, we have books by Pink, A.W. Pink. And, you know... I, I don't, if you want some devotional, inspirational material to put in your Bible about the stories in the Bible, it's hard to beat gleaning in Genesis. It's hard to beat gleaning in Exodus. 
gleaning in Joshua. But a little bit later on, when he gets into John, and also the book of Hebrews, he's absolutely worthless. He's absolutely worthless. And you look at those guys, and I get people ask me all the time, how do you explain that? How do you explain that God used them, but yet they're messed up on Calvinism uh, in some degree? Not everybody was a full-blown Calvinist, but they, they followed it. And, you know, how do you explain that? And, of course, people today have a problem understanding the, the time elements of periods of time. You know, you got God using men today who don't believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. I mean, you're going to say that everybody who doesn't believe the King James Bible, that God doesn't use them? Certainly God uses them. Some of them have halfway decent churches. They get people saved. They help people here. They help people there. And, you know, put that in the same time frame that back in the day, of Spurgeon and Whitfield and those guys and Pink, the issue was not the authority of the Word of God yet, though it was moving that way, but the main issue was Calvinism. And Calvinism was the issue of their day, like the King James Bible is the issue of our day. And you find that God used those guys uh, in spite of themselves. But here's the thing you got to see, and this is where discernment and perception come in. This is where you've got to see it as it really is. And it, it's not as, it doesn't get confusing at all. And that is when you, you know, I, I, I talked about Pink. He's wonderful inspirationally in Genesis, Exodus, and even Joshua. He's terrible in John and Hebrew. Why? Because in John and Hebrew, you get into doctrine. And Pink had no doctrine. If Pink had to lay out the millennium or eternity or, 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 or the Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, he couldn't do it if his life depended on it. Spurgeon, great preacher. They used to put his sermons in, the, in every newspaper in the country, word by word, on Monday morning. Great preacher. He wrote a commentary called the Pulpit Commentary. You know what? Absolutely Worthless. I mean, it is worth the paper it's written on. You know why? Because he knows nothing about doctrine. And you go with all of these guys. Jonathan Edwards preached sinners in the hands of a mighty angry God or mighty God and, and, and shocked the nation. George Whitfield's called the Prince of Preachers. Got 30,000 people converted on Boston Commons back in his day. But if he had to teach anything about the doctrinal part of the Bible, the millennium, he couldn't find his way out of the, with a laser beam and a flashlight because these guys were great on a practical milk level, but they had no doctrine. You want doctrine? Clarence Larkin. You want doctrine? Pentecost. You want doctrine? Darby. You want doctrine? Go to the guys that had the doctrine, and none of them are Calvinists. My point is this, if those guys had doctrine, new doctrine, they never got into Calvinism. But because they were shallow babes, actually, great preachers, all of their lives, it's hard to call Spurgeon a baby Christian, but put him up alongside of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, Revelation chapter 22, 14, Genesis chapter 6, and Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2, and I'll tell you what, he'll fall out of his crib and why and why and why because he couldn't find his bottle. They don't have any doctrine. 
But God used them. God used them. But they never attained anything. You would not find one book any of those guys wrote that had to do with anything in eternity, anything with New Jerusalem, anything with the millennium. They couldn't figure that out if their life depended on them. And because they were shallow and only got, and I use the word loosely, the milk of the Word of God, they got caught up in some stuff that just like pastors do today who are good men. And I believe they love God, but they have bought into a system of terms and have rejected the King James Bible, and uh, they're in the same boat. So you have to put it into the context of time and history that they lived and then run it back to where we're at today and see the comparisons. And that's exactly what you have today. The, the average Christian, the average pastor, and, I, and I don't, I'm just telling you, and I, I'm, this is my job. I do it. I mean, if you, if you sell cars for a living, you know cars. If you fly airplanes for a living, you know airplanes. If you, you know, you're a plumber, you know plumbing. If you're a painter, you know how to paint. I'm a pastor. I know how to pastor, and I know what pastors do. And I'm telling you, they have no clue today. They have absolutely no clue of any depth to anything about the Bible. They're relegated to what they get by reading somebody else's book other than God's book. And they're dependent on every other source out there other than the Holy Spirit of God to reveal truth to them. And there's no depth to them. There is no depth to them. I mean, you take the biggest pastors in these, in these mega churches around this city or around this country. You ask them to explain Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Couldn't do it. If you got them to Genesis chapter 6, uh, they'd give you the party line that they've been taught. You took them back to Genesis 1, 1, and 1, 2, you might get the party line. You took them to the book of Hebrews, wouldn't have a clue. You take them to Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48, they wouldn't even know where to begin. But put them in the pulpit on Sunday morning, and they give you the milk. And babies love milk. So baby Christians are going to always go where the milk bottle is. It's just that simple. And this is what actually sets our church apart, is the fact that, uh, you know, we don't have many babies here. If they come in as babies, they usually don't stay babies, and you'll, you'll see this tomorrow. But it's the thing where uh, it, it goes from the milk to the meat, and the meat is Bible doctrine. And these guys... Uh, that people hold up and think are great guys. And I'm not saying God didn't use them. But I'm just telling you right now that uh, he was limited in how they could, he could, they could use them. And he used them where he needed them in the time of what he wanted to accomplish. But at the same time, uh, they're all very shadow. And I use this term all the time. Most Christians today, most pastors today, they know some things about the Bible but they don't know the Bible. And, you know, this is what Paul's referring to here. He's saying, you guys, you know, you ought to be teachers. You ought to be, you ought to be into the meat of the Word of God. And yet, here we are again. Somebody has to teach you the first principles of the oracles of God one more time. And it's a thing where that is, the, that is modern-day Christianity uh, in, in every aspect of it. And then he says in verse 13, verse 13 usually will define the milk and the, uh, 
uh, and the meat. For everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Doesn't get any clearer than that. If you're just in the milk, then you're going to be, notice what it says. It didn't say you wouldn't be a soul winner. It didn't say you wouldn't be preach good soul winning messages. It doesn't mean you wouldn't be the number one conference speaker in an evangelism uh, conference that somebody's having in England or France or wherever. What it says there, you're unskillful in the word of righteousness. You don't know your Bible. You know some good things about the Bible, but when push comes to shove, you don't know your Bible. And that is the pitfall of every, every pastor and every Christian, almost without exception, in the Laodicean church period. You're a baby. And you say, well, I've been pastoring 40 years. Well, you know what? I hope you change your diapers on a regular basis or you're loaded up because I'm telling you, you're a baby. I mean, it's just that simple. And uh, it's a thing where, you know, it doesn't matter how long you've done it. What's that got to do with it? Spurgeon preached for like 40-some years, and he was a baby when he died, just like he was when he started, when it came to, uh, to knowing the Bible. He didn't know anything. Then verse 14, and here's a great, great, great verse. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age. See that thing? Now watch how he's going to define age, because Obviously, we would think that he's talking about 60, 70, 80, 90 years old. And I'm not saying that uh, by the time you hit 60 or 70 or 80, if you've been saved for a long time, you, you would fit into this. But I have in my church here, our church here, I have people that are in their 30s that spiritually they're in their 80s. I have people that are in their 20s physically that spiritually they're 50 or 60. And, uh, you know, it's, but I want you to see this. Here's a determining factor. But strong meat, doctrine, belong to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know what doctrine does when you teach it and you use it? It exercises your senses. And it gives you discernment. Two things we're going to talk about tomorrow in our verses is the two key aspects of what every Christian ought to get, perception and, and uh, uh, discernment. And, uh, you know, those are the two things that most of God's people never get. So I, in, in my own church, you know, I got people who were in their 20s. I got people who are in their 30s, people who are in their 40s, physically, who, spiritually speaking, they're in their 70s and their 80s. They really are a lot farther along spiritually, and the reason is by reason of use. You use it. How do you use it? Verse 12, for the time you ought to be teachers. That's how you use it. You use it or you abuse it, and you use it by being a teacher. And when you teach somebody, and this is why I, I take something, some little concept like discipleship, and... <clears throat> I, I, I try to squeeze every drop out of it I can. You get discipled. And then my goal is to make you a discipler. So the person that discipled you is your teacher. They discipled you. Now they become not just your teacher anymore, but they become your monitor. You get somebody else, I'll give you somebody else to work with, you, 
just came through it, have somebody else that just brought you through it, the two of you, take somebody new, and now you begin to learn how to teach the lessons. This time, the person may, that taught you may just teach one or two lessons and let you do the majority of them. It doesn't matter. You get to discern, you, excuse me, you get to exercise your senses, and that's where it starts. Once you get through that, in most cases, you're ready to fly. You're ready to take your own. <clears throat> you're ready to do something with it. And uh, it's a thing where that's how it works. And, you know, we have the people ministry. Same, same deal. The people ministry is designed to give you the material that you can use to exercise your senses <clears throat> when you work with people. Just that simple. Bible Institute's the same thing. Primarily, a Bible Institute is for you to learn your Bible. I get it. But if you're working with somebody in the discipleship or discipleship two, which is another lever up, or you're just teaching them. There's people who are teaching the books of the Bible. You're teaching Romans, or you're teaching this, teaching that, or you're giving this, or you're giving that. Out that you're teaching group, small groups of people or individuals. You're exercising your senses because you have to prepare, and when you prepare, Holy Spirit of God gives you and shows you what you need to do, and it develops you. I, I don't have the ability as a human man or even as a pastor to develop you. My ability lies in the fact that I have the ability to put things in your life that will develop you. But me as an individual, just me and you, I mean, I can tell you you're good looking, or I can tell you you're ugly, I can tell you you're fat, I can tell you you're skinny, I can tell you I don't like the car you drive, you need to get a Jeep, I can tell you all kinds of things. But that's not going to make you better. My job, I don't have the wherewithal to help you be, to make you spiritual, but I do, as a pastor, have the sermon and perception to put into your life what I know will help you to exercise your senses to discern. Discern what's good and evil. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a thing where that's, uh, that's the goal you want to get to. That's my goal for everybody in my church. Unfortunately, <laughs> it's not the goal of everybody in my church. But it's my goal. And uh, there's various ways that, that, w- that we do it. You know, there's not one of us that have a, not one of us that have by ourselves, um, we all have individual's ability. But God never works unless in extreme cases, if you're on an airplane or you're someplace that he puts somebody in your world. But within a church structure, God just never hardly ever does something with just one person. I'll give you an example. Last week we had the uh, uh, Jim Dereskevich and uh, uh, um, Sean, uh, uh, Sean Kidd, uh, their football coach, came to church with his wife. And uh, it, it goes to show you how that it, it, all, it all works. Uh, I had never met this guy before. He, is, he was struggling with some things in his own life. He may or may not be saved, uh, but, but that, that's immaterial at this point. Jim thinks he probably is, but they'll work that out. But anyway, J- he's Jim's coach. He's Sean's coach. And he confided in Jim, 
you know, I think I'm going to give up coaching. I'm just not. Uh, he, he just was confused with a lot of things coming down on him in his life. Okay? So Jim and Sean, they, they start talking to him. They had him over for dinner, him and his wife. His wife's a Catholic. She's probably not saved. And they, you know, while they're having a dinner, I, I think it was one of the boys. I, I think it was one of the kids. It said, hey, why don't you come to church tomorrow? And he said, I think we probably will. So uh, showed up to church last Sunday. And I preached a message on the candlestick. He came up afterwards to me and he said, you know what? He said, that, was the, that is exactly the message that I needed to hear. Uh, that has been my problem. My, my candles went out. And, now, and I talked about buying the field. And he said, I was all out of whack on it. I, I never saw my field as a football field of taking these young boys and really helping mentor them. And now my candle is back on again, and I want you to know that that's exactly what, uh, uh, what, what I needed. And, uh, and it's a thing where, and then you talked to him afterwards, and he said that they're all coming back to church tomorrow. So it's a thing where here's it is. It wasn't one person. Somebody can say, well, it was Bob's message. You're out of your mind. My message was just a part of the overall thing that God used us as a team. It started with Jim and Sean. Their perception and this guy trusting them to open up to them, and then, you know, he confides in them. They invite him, to, they take him to dinner, get a little closer, invite him to church, he shows up. Jim tells me Thursday night, we're having him over for dinner again Saturday night. Everybody's on board with this thing. It wasn't me, it wasn't Sean, it, was, it wasn't any one person. It's all of us working together. It's all of us. We all have our part. My message would have meant nothing if Jim and Sean hadn't talked with them. They're, they're, if, if I would have preached my message and it would have went nowhere. If, if, if they would have talked to them and I would have preached something else, then it would have been lost in that. God's Holy Spirit orchestrates all of us together as a team that he puts this piece with this person, this person with this person, this piece with this person, and then in his timing, he pulls it all together to get that person what they need. And if, if pastors could just see that, instead of thinking that they're the answer to man's problems and, this, you know, and, and, and always being focused on what they want for themselves and what they're doing, instead of seeing that the ministry, this vineyard, it only works because when you got here, at some point in your life, I hope so, you decided that you were going to buy this field with me. And now we're tilling the field together, planting the vineyard, and we're all dressing the trees. And uh, it's one of those things. I don't mean to be off color, but even the people that don't do anything and are full of crap, you can use them. You know what? You fertilize the trees with their crap. I mean, you get something out of everything. But that's what we do. And that's the verse right there. We all work together. My job, fundamentally, when I came here, was to get as many of you treat, treat seed-bearing trees, fruit-bearing trees, in this vineyard. And now, you've grown up, throwing seeds all over the place, more trees are popping up, and it's a thing now where you're doing more of the work here than I am because that's the way it's supposed to be. I'm the central guy, the central figure, and I focus, and the Holy Spirit of God will run things back through me. 
and it'll pull us together in what we're doing, just like with this coach and his wife. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you, if they keep coming and they're really seeking the truth, he'll either get right or get saved and get down in and his wife will get saved. And uh, it's a thing where that's the way it works. And that is the that is the way a fruitful ministry should operate. There's never one person. No, everybody's expendable. God never builds any ministry on one person. It's everybody working together. And that's the way it has to work. And it goes back to the fact that my job, at this point of my life in this church, my job is to keep growing the trees, keep giving you what you need, and keep giving you this. And now instead of me going out and witnessing to people and trying to get people to come, I got 120 people to do it. And uh, that's the way it works. But strong meat belongeth to them that are full of age, even those who by reason of use you have your senses exercised. And that's what makes the difference. That's the difference between the guy who gets it and a guy who doesn't. And we, in every church, you're going to have those that will not. I'm going to show you that tomorrow. I'm going to show you after 50 years of doing this and working with thousands of people. Every day of my life, for almost 50 years, I've, tried, I've helped somebody get through something. I wish there was a day I could say, I didn't have any. No, every day, somebody calls, somebody this, somebody that, some, most time, multiple times. But you know what? Over the years, that put everything in kind of a perspective of a category for me. And you basically have, in any church, forget the world, you basically have four types of Christians. And I'm going to talk to you about it tomorrow. Okay, so that's five. <clears throat> Our introduction <coughs> to Melchizedek. We now know that we're dealing with the, we're dealing with the uh, priesthood, the Old Testament priesthood under Aaron, kingdom of heaven, and the New Testament priesthood for Christ, which is typified by this mystical, magical person who has no beginning, no, no descent, no mother, no father, and, uh, and he represents the eternal priesthood of Christ. So now we're going to get into it. Chapter 6, we'll get back to the next time, and we'll, we'll kind of put it all together. Now, chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, Jerusalem, priest of the Most High God, <clears throat> who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. This will be back in Genesis chapter 14. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, uh, first <clears throat> being by interpretation king of righteousness, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. <clears throat> now that tells us about whoever Melchizedek was, that he's living in Jerusalem or where Jerusalem will be. Uh, it isn't called Jerusalem this time. It's called Salem. Jerusalem. It's on the end of it. And, uh, <clears throat> and that means city of peace. <clears throat> but the thing we see about him is three titles. King of righteousness, king of Salem, king of peace. Now, here's where everybody runs home to mama. <clears throat> without father, without mother, without descent, having in the beginning of days nor end of life. Now, this is where everybody <clears throat> suddenly falls apart and says, well, how could that be 
So the only person that it could be <clears throat> is Christ. A, a appearance of Christ in the Old Testament as Melchizedek who was king of Jerusalem. Now that ought to tell you right out of the, right out of the shoot <clears throat> if you have any doctrine in you that it could not be Christ. And the reason it couldn't be Christ is because Christ couldn't be king in Jerusalem till after he comes out of that tomb. And he'll never be king in Jerusalem to Revelation chapter 19 till God puts his enemies at rest and makes him on his footstool. And so it could not be Christ based on that. But that's way too deep for these guys. So let's just keep it shallow. But if you're a Bible student and I'm looking through that thing and somebody says, well, it has to be Christ. My first inkling is, how could it be Christ? It says he's king of Jerusalem. Christ is never given a title of king of anything <coughs> in the Old Testament. <coughs> it's all future. <coughs> so that goes out the window. <coughs> but that's a little too deep for these guys. Now here's the thing that I don't know how you miss this. Somebody says, it's Christ. It's Christ. I know a lot of preachers that, that, that I'm friends with that think it's Christ. And I just ignore it because, you know, they're nice guys, but I can't help it that they don't, can't figure this thing out. <coughs> but look, here it is. It's Christ. It's Christ. How do you know? Without father, without mother, without descent, having in the beginning of days nor end of life. It has to be Christ. Okay, would you read the next part of that verse? But made like unto the Son of God. How could it be the Son of God if he's made like unto the Son of God? Now that would be a, <clears throat> that would be a problem for me. But seemingly it isn't a problem for most guys because when you don't know what it is, you just ignore verses that tells you what it ain't. And that right there would tell you that it's not Christ because it's made like unto the Son of Christ. So he's a type of Christ, but he's not Christ. Now, oh, watch how the Bible interprets it, verse 3. Verse 3 again. Mark this verse in red. Underline it with your red china marker. Without father, without mother, without descent. Mark that word. Verse 4. Hang on. Keep your little red pencil handy. Now consider how great this man was <clears throat> unto whom... <clears throat> Even this patriarch Abraham gave the tenth of spoils. And verily they that are of the sons of Levi, comparison, and verily they are the sons of Levi who receive the office of the priesthood, have a commandment to take tithes of the people according to the law, that is, of their brethren, though they came out of the loins. There's your loins, loins of Abraham, see? Now watch. Watch how the Bible interprets itself. See, you got in verse 3 and you said without descent, and so you're thinking that it's got to be eternal and it's got to be Christ. Look at now, and then in verse 4 and 5, he just compared two priesthoods again for you. Now look what he says in verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham and blessed him that had the promises. You see, the descent there is not a descent of, of, of your life. It's a descent from your priesthood. 
the Levitical priesthood had a descent through the sons of the priests of the tribe of Levi. Melchizedek, as representing Christ's priesthood, has no physical descent like the Old Testament Levitical priesthood descent. See that? How much, how clearer could it be? Verse 5, verse 3 is Melchizedek's descent, no descent. Verse 6 is the Levitical priesthood has a descent. They descend from daddy to son to daddy to son to daddy to son because it's a physical Old Testament priesthood. Melchizedek, as the eternal priesthood representing Christ's priesthood, has no descent in that priesthood because it's eternal. Kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. See how easy that is? I mean, it's just that simple. Now, let's talk about who Melchizedek was. Obviously, this is one of the great mysteries in the Bible, and uh, again, it's not as complicated as you might think it would be if you just follow through with the paper trail of what's happening through the Bible. In Genesis chapter 14, as I said, this Melchizedek meets up with Abraham. And if you go back and you look at it, and the time frame here now will be uh, around 1912 B.C., 1912 years before Christ shows up. And this is where Abraham, if you go back and look at what happens, this is where Abraham gets the kingdom of heaven. He didn't have it up to this point. This is where God takes him out and shows him the stars of heaven. This is where when Melchizedek shows up, Melchizedek blesses him, and it's obviously from this point on the life of Abraham changes and God takes a a, a different direction in where he's going in his future and shows him the literal stars of heaven and says someday your seed is going to be like the stars of heaven, hence kingdom of heaven. Now, probably, if you just stick with your Bible, there's only one person Melchizedek could be. And even though he's not named, and I'll tell you why that in a moment, but even though he's not named, it's really logically, from a Bible standpoint, the only person that it could be. And that would be Shem. Most people don't realize that um, Shem lives to be 600 years old. And most people don't understand that in 1912, Shem would be around 520 years old. He's still alive. In fact, he's around long after Isaac's born. According to the Usher's chronology, he dies around 1846 or 48 B.C. So he's around a lot, and he's certainly around this time. Remembered in Genesis chapter 9, verse 26, when God blessed the three sons of Noah, he said unto Shem, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem. And that's where Shem, after Noah, picked up the kingdom of heaven. 
So he has that kingdom. He's down in Jerusalem. And in God's time frame, when God is ready to call out Abraham to establish a nation of Israel in Genesis chapter 14, guess who shows up? Shem, Melchizedek. And the reason why he's not named is because he represents the kingdom of God, which represents the church age, and you and I both know that the church is a mystery. And probably, I I wouldn't know of any other explanation, unless it came down from a UFO and dropped him off someplace, but most likely based on the Bible itself and the continuity of the Scriptures. What happened is God deals with Abraham. God calls out Abraham. But Abraham has to get God's righteousness. So Shem shows up after the battle. And by the way, that battle was a type of the battle of the second coming of Christ. He shows up. Abraham gives tithes to him. His title is King of Righteousness, King of Jerusalem, Salem, and King of Peace. Abraham gives tithes unto him. He turns over the kingdom of heaven to Abraham, and then in the next chapter, chapter 15, God shows him the stars of heaven and confirms that kingdom. And from that point on, we're now looking at the establishment of the calling out formulation, formulation, of the nation of Israel through Abraham. And then you never hear from Melchizedek again. And uh, so, you know, the idea that he is Christ goes out the window when he's king of Jerusalem because Christ could not be king of Jerusalem yet. Two, um, the descent there without descent and father and mother has to do with the priesthood, not his eternalness. And then the third one is the fact that he says he's like unto the Son of God. He's not the Son of God. He's a type of the Son of God. So now we begin to fully understand how this thing works. And the mystery here is pretty much cleared up <clears throat> from the Bible. And, uh, you know, it, it, and even at that, I'm telling you right now, if somebody said, well, Bob, I just don't believe that because it would have to say Shem for me to believe it, hey, I'm good with that. You know what? If that's where you're at, that's where you're at. Just go get a cheeseburger and we're good. I'm fine. But the bottom line is, when you come through the scriptures, the same person who says, I don't think it could be Shem, could not give me a plausible, workable answer of who it would be, other than Christ, and you're out the door on that with three strikes. So you're left with nobody. But when you put the Bible to it and you follow the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the timeline through the Bible, what happened? How come he says to Ham, you're going to be a servant of Hermit to your brother, to Japheth, you're going to dwell in the tents of Shem. And then he says to Shem, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Why did God pick one boy out of those three and bless him? And then where does Shem go after that? I mean, he lives for 600 some years. Where is he? What happened to him? I mean, blessed to be the Lord God of Shem and you never hear from him again? Really? No, while he's down there, God's doing what he's doing in the life of Abraham and he pulls out Abraham and then he sends Shem over to him and he hands off the kingdom of heaven to him. And then the events in Abraham's life begin from that point on of God 
using him to do what God did with him to establish the nation of Israel. Abraham, Isaac, Isaac, Jacob, Jacob, 12 tribes. Off we go. So you've got to remember that the comparison here is the comparison of an Old Testament priesthood and a New Testament priesthood. The Old Testament priesthood is the Levitical priesthood under Aaron and Moses. The New Testament priesthood is the eternal priesthood of Christ represented by Melchizedek, who represents the kingdom of God. And uh, the old Levitical priesthood represented the kingdom of heaven. That's why he's not named. Um, he's, he's a mystery type of the church. Now let's go on here. Everybody see that? Any questions on that? I don't want to, yeah. No, the Melchizedek is never given that title, so you can't go there. <clears throat> He's not. His question is, David is, is priest, prophet, and king. Could you give that same designation of Melchizedek? Uh, <clears throat> He's a king. Um, He's a priest. But I don't know anywhere where he's likened to a prophet. So you, you don't want to go where it doesn't clearly go. David, you find it. Uh, but as it stands, they're the only two. But yeah, I, it doesn't ever say that. So if he was, it, you, we can't make an analogy because we're not told that he was. So he's a king and he's a priest. But there's nowhere that I know that he's a prophet. So anybody else? Okay, move on here. Uh, chapter 7, verse 7. <clears throat> and with uh, and without all contradiction, <clears throat> the less is blessed of the better. Now here we did. Notice how he just came through this Melchizedek thing. Now look what he, he if you pay attention, it keeps bringing you back to the theme if you don't miss it. And without all contradiction. There's, in other words, what he's about to say, there's no contradiction to it. What is it? The less is blessed, uh, the less is blessed of the better. In other words, what he's saying, the New Testament is better uh, than, than the Old Testament. The, uh, that's what he's saying. The less is the Old Testament, the better is Christ. The less is the Old Testament Levitical priesthood, the better is the eternal priesthood after the order of Melchizedek, which is Christ. That's what he's saying. This is the comparison. If you pay attention, he keeps going back and making those comparisons. And the, and here and and here, men that die receive tithes, but he but there he receiveth them of whom it is uh, witnessed uh, that he liveth. And of course, again, he's talking about the Old Testament versus the New Testament. For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him, Christ. Notice again the reference to the loins as a reference to strength, to thighs. Somebody asked that question Thursday night. Uh, For he was yet in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. Notice Abraham is in the line of Christ. So Christ was in the loins of Abraham when Melchizedek met him. So therefore, how in the world could it be Christ? It just keeps banging that thing right out the door, man, that it can't be that way. Now here comes another comparison, verse 11. If therefore, because what he just said, perfection whereby the Levitical priesthood, comma, parentheses, excuse me, 
for under it the people received the law, parentheses, what further need was there that another priest should rise after the order of Melchizedek and, and not be called after the order of Aaron? You see what we got there? Now that, that's so clear. You have the order of Melchizedek and the order of Aaron. And what he's saying is, if the perfection were found with the old one, what good is there for having a new one? And of course, the old one was imperfect because it was through a descent of man. The new one is perfect because it goes through a man who has no descent and that as a priest, and that's Christ. One priesthood is eternal. The other priesthood is temporal. It's just that simple. Now look at verse 12. For the priesthood being changed, there is made of necessity a change also of the law. What's the change? You want to put this in your Bible if you don't have it. The Old Testament Levitical priesthood was changed from being a limited one, not perfect, to an unlimited eternal one that is perfect. That's what you want. For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe uh, of which no man gave attendance at the altar. It says, For he of whom these things are spoken pertaineth to another tribe of which no man gave attendance at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord sprang out of Judah. So where the Levitical priesthood comes out of Levi... When Christ shows up as the eternal priest, he comes out of Judah. Of which the tribe Moses spake uh, nothing concerning priesthood. Because in the Old Testament, it was all through the Levitical priesthood. But that's what changed, you see. The change was that now Christ comes out of the tribe of Judah, not Levi. Because he's represent- he had to. He had to. If he would have come out of Levi, then it would have been a too closely associated with the Old Testament Levitical priesthood that was by descent. So God had to bring him through another tribe, change the tribes, and bring him through a tribe that is going to be different from Levi because the priesthood is different. I mean, it's just that simple. And it is yet far more evident that after the similitude of Melchizedek, there rises another prophet. Now, boy, if you... Put that in, circle that in red. There it is. If there's anything that just told you that Melchizedek was not Christ, you just read it. But when guys don't know their Bible, particularly the book of Hebrews, then they get hung up in that it's Christ thing, and yet uh, they couldn't explain it if their life depended on it. All you got to do to smell out a guy like that is just take the book of Hebrews and say, okay, before we answer this, Give me an outline of the book of Hebrews. Start at the beginning. Tell me who it's to, what it's for. Give me an outline of every chapter, and then we'll come back and we'll look at your silly little expression here that you just gave me. You watch how fast it falls apart. It's the difference between knowing a few things about the Bible that you're wrong on in this case, other than knowing your Bible that always gives you a plain trail of Bible truth that even when it doesn't tell you it's Melchizedek, you have to ask yourself, well, if it isn't him, who in the world would it be? I mean, it's just that simple. It isn't Pope Benedict IV, I guarantee you. 
So verse 15 is a great, great, great verse again that tells you that uh, he was like Christ. He was a similitude, but he wasn't Christ. And there's no way you can get around those two verses unless you just really want to. And believe me, there's guys out there who really want to. Who was made not after the law of a carnal commandment, there's the Old Testament, but after the power of an endless life. And of course, there again, the comparison between the Old Testament law, the New Testament priesthood under Christ, which he testifieth, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's your sixth time. Your fifth time is in verse 11. How many did I give you so far? Okay, you're not counting them. Okay, no problem. But that's your sixth one. For there is verily a disannulling of the commandment going before for the weakness and the unprofitableness thereof. And of course, the uh, annulling of the command, disannulling of the commandment is the doing away of the Old Testament. You disannulled it, disavowed it, it's gone. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope, there is Christ, did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. Now that's a great verse clearly again showing you that the law made nothing perfect. There was nothing perfect could come out of the law. But a better hope, Christ. And again, the two priesthoods is the key here. For under the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of the better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And inasmuch as not without an oath, he was made a priest. For these priests were made without an oath, but this with an oath by him that said unto him, The Lord swear and will not repent. Thou art a uh, priest after the order of, of forever. After the order of Moses. There's your seventh one. And that is the oath. So you have this oath repeated seven times. The Old Testament Levitical priests never got an oath. They were under the law. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament, New Testament. Notice the word surety. He's a, the New Testament, everything is sure. In the Old Testament, everything is conditional. You want to put that in there. You want to remember that. In the Old Testament, everything is conditional. In the New Testament, everything is sure. That's a great concept. And they truly were many priests because they were not uh, suffered to continue by reason of death. But this man, be, uh, because he continueth forever, uh, hath an unchangeable priesthood. You see, it keeps coming back to not the man, but his priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he will ever liveth to make intercession for them. Clearly now Christ. For such a high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for our own people. I uh, did once when he offered up himself. For the law maketh men high priests which have an infirmity, but the word of the oath, uh, Melchizedek, the oath, which was since the law, maketh the Son who was consecrated forevermore. 
again, over and over and over and over and over, you see the comparison between the two priesthoods. Now, quickly here we have time. Let's do get, get into chapter 6. We've got time to put this, all three of these together for you. Now, we're chapter 5, Christ is compared to Melchizedek. And in chapter 7, Melchizedek's priesthood is compared to uh, the Levitical priesthood. In chapter 6, you have, the, uh, you have a little interlude here. Uh, somebody uh, has lost God. And we see here, through it all, the preservation of the saints of God. Now, it starts out 6.1, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance for dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permit. For it is impossible for those who were enlightened, uh, once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, this, um, this first four, uh, first six verses here, are, 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 again, are used a lot to show that somebody can lose their salvation. And, uh, of course, uh, this is, again, this is where you go when you don't understand the book of Hebrews. Now, I will tell you this. It does say in here that if you did lose it, you could never get it back unless Christ came down and died again. Well, that puts everybody in a little world of hurt. So if a charismatic wants to tell you that you can lose your salvation and you want to believe it and you actually lose it, the only chance you ever have of getting it back is for Christ to come down and die a second time for you. And that ain't going to happen. So if it could happen, you're, you're in trouble. But that's not even remotely what it's dealing with. This is dealing with the nation of Israel. This has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. And it says in verse 4 that, uh, notice, uh, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us. Now the first thing you want to see there is the us. Who's the us? It's the Hebrews. Let us go into perfection. What kind of perfection? Going from the Levitical priesthood that was unperfect to the new priesthood with Christ that is perfect. See how this thing all ties together? Not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. That would be the Old Testament. Of the doctrine of baptism and the laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. Now that's all given to the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ. Doctrine of baptism, Acts 2.38, laying on of hands, the sign gifts, uh, and the resurrection, Matthew 28, and eternal judgment. It's all given to the nation of Israel at the first coming of Christ by the ministry of Christ. And this we will do if God permit. Verse 4, 5, and 6, all dealing with the nation of Israel. For it is possible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost uh, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they should fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. Now what he's saying is this. 
This is Israel's spiritual condition. Israel had tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, a millennium. They had been partakers of the Holy Ghost. They once were enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift. Israel had all of that. And then they threw it away. And what he's saying here is that there's no way, if you've walked away from that, there's no way for you to get that back without Christ coming down and dying again. So, now you have to go through the tribulation period and you have to endure until the end or get your head cut off for you to get into that kingdom. And uh, notice verse 7. We come up through 3, 4, 5, and 6. And then look at verse 7. Tribulation context. For the earth which drinketh in the rain and cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meat for thou who is dressed receiveth the blessing from God. That's a reference to the former and the latter rain in the tribulation period. But that which beareth thorns and briars. Go back to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 6, and it will define that as the nation of Israel. Is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end, end of the tribulation, <coughs> shall be burned. Second coming, Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. Not one thing to the Christian in any of this all dealing with the nation of Israel who had everything that God gave them and rejected it. And now they're not going, Christ is not going to come back and die again for them to get it all back. They had the chance in Acts chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, and all the way up to 7. And then its doors closed. So now the only way, he's not coming back down and dying again. The only way the nation of Israel can get God is to go through the tribulation period and some of them will make it and, and get the blessings of God, verse 7, and some of them won't make it, and their end's going to be burned. Matthew chapter 25, 10 virgins, five are wise and five are foolish. See how easy that is? Now, this is Bible study at its best. This is getting the truth of God on a doctrinal level that, that you did, and all we have done. All we have done is just laid out the scriptures, the scriptures, and come through this thing and tied it all together for you. Verse 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation through thus we speak. Now, there's a difference between the people of 1 through 8 and 9 on, and that would be the wise and the foolish. The people from 9 on are going to get it. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Now this will be chapter Matthew chapter 25 verses 30 to 41 and the Jew ministering in the tribulation period. Watch it very carefully. Just so you wouldn't think it's the church age, watch how the next verse keeps the context going for you. Verse 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. Here it comes. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the 
end. Matthew 24, 13. He that endureth to the end, the same shall be saved. See how that book just keeps you, keeps that context right there? There's no way you can jump outside the white lines unless you're just a white line jumper. I mean, it's just that simple. It just, the, the doctrine will hold your feet to the fire. Or you're going to put on your asbestos booties and just go wherever you want to go. It's just that simple. Now look at the next verse. That ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And you'll find those faith and patience in Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. Tribulation saints. And the promises will be, we'll get to it in Hebrews 8 and 9, the promises of the new covenant. And when God made the promise to Abraham, ah, there it goes. He's not talking to the church. God didn't make any promises to the church to Abraham, but he did to Israel. But when God made promise to Abraham because he could swear by no greater than himself, surely saying, blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. That's, that's, the, that's the promise of the seed stars of heaven. And so after he had patiently endured, there it is again, endured. You keep finding those words, end the endure. Who would believe, certainly no scholar, certainly no preacher with a PhD, certainly no preacher who thinks he's smarter than God, who would ever think that one little book would be opened up by just two little words? There are really three little words. Patience, endured, and unto the end. Three little words. And if you were to go over to James chapter 5, you'd see it laid out <coughs> in the most perfect tribulation context with Moses and Elijah thrown right in the mix, Revelation chapter 11. Nothing like a Bible to clear up your seminary education. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end. There it is again. You know, what you ought to do, I probably should have told you this, but what you ought to do is just in a little red thing, underline every one of those words in the book of Hebrews that, that keep throwing it context of the tribulation. Maybe some of you are already doing it. I don't know. But you ought to. Wherein? God willing more abundantly to show under the heirs of promise. There it is. How in the world would that be the church? The heirs of promise were given to Abraham back here in the verse before it. and given to you. Your, heir, your, your promise is in Romans chapter 8. The immutability. Immutability means that God can't lie. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath. By in two immutable things in which God was in, impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation uh, who have fled uh, for refuge to lay hold uh, on the hopes of... See that word there, lay hold? Remember that? Where does that go back to? I taught you about, what, two or three months ago? 
Remember we were looking at the, the, the spider in the palace that what? Taketh hold. Remember that? With the little fingers. I don't know if the spider's got fingers, but it says she taketh hold in the king's palace. There it is. See? You got to watch words like that. For the hope that is set before us. You see, it couldn't be for a Christian because, you know, I already have the hope inside me. There's no hope set before me. I got hope living inside me, but Israel doesn't. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entertaineth under that within the veil. Now see that thing, the veil? That got nothing to do with me. Man, that veil was ripped from one end to the other for me. I ain't got nothing to do with me. Now, when it says, by two immutable things in which God is impossible to lie, here's what it is. And this is why it's to Israel. 1, verse 14, uh, surely, saying, Surely, blessings will I bless thee. Then God is not lying about the blessings. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 5, he's not lying about the multiplying them. So those are the two things, and, and they're not given to the church. They're given to Israel. And what he's telling the Jews here, verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Now that'll fit for you and me. Because Paul's talking about what we have, trying to see the, get the Jews to see what, what we have is better than what they have, and in this case, the priesthood. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth in, into uh, that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And what he's saying there is when Christ died on the cross, he ended the veil. Now you can enter into the veil where before nobody could. <clears throat> now we go into the throne room boldly. And uh, you know what? It's a thing where um, it, it's just one of the, one of the uh, you know, now we have a complete uh, layout here of, uh, of, of chapter 5, 6, and 7. I'm glad we had time to get all three of them in. Uh, now you know 5 and 7 deal with the Melchizedek and then chapter 6 deals with the, the indifference of God's people to that priesthood and then him trying to bring them around showing them what they need to do and how it all lays out. So that's where we're at. Any questions? Well, I'm glad you all got it.